0: Well, good evening. Everybody doing well? You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We start a series of studies, which will probably take about four weeks, in the book of Jude. And this evening, we're going to have our introduction. And in the introduction, I try to give you a good overview of the letter or the book or the epistle or whatever we're studying, which can carry you through the rest of the studies. In fact, Uh, One of the things you might want to do, if you're really interested in just an overview of the Bible, you can go on our website and go under Studies by Book and listen to the very first study of every book. And I guess that would be 66 different studies. And as you go through them, you would get a pretty good overview of what the book was about. Not an in-depth study, certainly, but you'd get a good understanding and overview and summary And so that might be helpful for some of you who are not as familiar with all of the books of the Bible. But, of course, it's always important after we get a good overview to get into the Word verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Amen? Let's open in a word of prayer this evening as we prepare to study the book of Jude. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking that you would be Lord in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we often fail to trust you, and we often fail to believe that you can preserve us and care for us and provide for our needs, but this evening, Lord, may we understand that these things are true and that we can trust you with our very lives, that we need only honor you with our lives and live our lives for you and know that you will be strong on our behalf and honor us. And Lord, we ask that you'd bless us this evening through the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, tonight is Calvary Kids, so all that noise, it sounds a little bit like a stadium, is uh, those of you who are parents or your children having a wonderful time. So that's good. This evening in the book of Jude, Jude's epistle, we see that the theme of this book is contend for the faith, contend for the faith. You know, there's something that's very true about learning any martial art, whether it's boxing or wrestling or karate or whatever you might learn, any fighting art, you're going to learn that in order to to learn how to contend, to fight, you're going to get beat up. You're you're going to to take a few hits. It's going to happen. Uh, We were doing drills on Monday in uh, karate and uh, I got pretty beat up. I'm still walking around with a little bit of a limp and, you know, I got these Okinawan uh, suntans on my, on my wrist. And I realized, you know, part of the process of learning to contend to learning to fight is taking hits. You, you don't just wake up one day and say, Oh yeah, I know how to do this. You, you got to get hit a few times. And, and I don't do boxing, but you know, for those that box, I mean, listen, I'll tell you what, I mean, <laughs> if you can't take a few punches, you're not going to make it through the round. Contending for the faith requires you understanding that you are in a martial experience. You are actually fighting. You're not a spectator. You're not sitting on the sides with your popcorn. You are actually in the fight. And and maybe fighting isn't your thing and martial arts isn't your thing, but one thing I can tell you as a Christian, you better get used to the fact you are engaged in a battle, you are out there, you are going to take hits, you are going to take punches, you better get used to that. And the thing about Jude is Jude comes in saying, contend for the faith, you have to accept the fact that you are in a battle and deal with those things that would come against us to prevent us from growing in Christ. And so, let's talk a little bit about Jude himself. The writer of this general epistle, by general epistle we mean that it's, it's written to, to anyone who wants to read it, not to a specific church or a specific group of people. But the writer of this general epistle is probably Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary. You see, Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born. There's no reason to believe that wasn't true. There's nothing in the scriptures that, that prohibited that, and certainly why would there be? She was a virgin who gave birth to the Messiah, and then after that, had children of her own. And Jude, the brother of James, who wrote the book of James, the Lord's brother, is mentioned, Jude is mentioned and referred to several times within the Gospels. You may not be aware of that. He's even mentioned by name. First of all, when Jesus was preaching, and his preaching was unwelcome in his hometown of Nazareth, His brothers are mentioned in Matthew and Mark's gospel. When Jesus' mother and his brothers requested to speak with him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jude was there. Probably called Judas, not Jude, but Jude was there. And when Jesus traveled to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, recorded in John chapter 2, Jude was there. When Jesus' brothers were mocking him in his ministry prior to the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, Jude was there. Because Jude simply did not believe that his brother was the Messiah of Israel until after his resurrection. Neither did James. And Jude is referred to several times within the book of Acts and Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians as well. So he's no stranger to the New Testament. In fact, after Jesus' ascension, he remained in Jerusalem with his mother and his brothers. We know that in Acts chapter 1. And he joined Jesus' disciples in constant prayer and was present during the election of Matthias, who was elected to replace Judas Iscariot. He was one of the 120 believers that received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he was even referred to by Paul... In his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, when Paul was defending his rights as an apostle, he mentioned the Lord's brothers, referring at least to James and to Jude. So this is not a person we don't know anything about. Jude, the half-brother, if you will, of our Lord, and a man who was used by God mightily as well in the early church. Now, Jude does not seem to consider himself one of the apostles within the early church. He does not consider himself an apostle. Others did. Others were referred to as apostles, but he did not consider himself one. In fact, as he opens the book, he doesn't call himself an apostle. And within the book, in verses 17 and 18, he refers to the apostles and doesn't include himself as one of them. So just because he was the Lord's brother didn't mean that he was called to be an apostle. Whereas James we know was, Jude was not. Now, as far as the date of this letter and the style and the subject of this letter, there is no way to definitely determine exactly when or from where this letter was written. We don't know that. But it was apparently written toward the end of the Apostolic Age, which is about the first hundred years of the Church, and it was probably written between 75 and 80 A.D. It was written while there were still some alive— who had heard the apostles preach. And it may or may not have been written from Palestine after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or specifically the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. So we were guessing that it was probably shortly after that, and, and probably after the time that James was put to death. But we, we don't know exactly when. Now, it was uh, a letter that was, again, with the theme of contending for the faith, a letter he didn't want to write, but he felt compelled to write. Now, I'm going to say this about contending. No one wants to have to fight. No one wants to have to fight. I mean, you have to be able to fight if you're attacked, right? But no one, I mean, would hope no one gets up in the morning and says, I really hope that on my way to my car in the parking lot, somebody tries to hit me over the head with a lead pipe. Nobody gets up and says, you know, I really hope because I'd like to try out some of my moves and my kata, you know, on the way to work today and just like really put a hurt on somebody. Nobody thinks that way. And those that study boxing or martial arts or any fighting art know you hope to never have to use it. In fact, you learn it so you never have to use it. And so if you ever do, it's going to be over very quickly. But having said that, understand that sometimes you have to fight. Sometimes you have no choice but to fight if you're attacked or or in the church, to to, to use not a physical example, but to use the spiritual example. When you're attacked, when, when people come against your beliefs and the things you know to be true, you have to contend for the faith. You don't walk away from a fight like that. You can't. It doesn't have to become a physical altercation, and it shouldn't. But there has to be you standing up for what you know is true in the face of lies in the face of smears and attacks and persecution. And so, you're going to see in a little bit, Jude didn't want to write this letter. But he had no choice. He had to. Jude explains that his reason for writing is to warn them about certain adversaries of the faith. You have adversaries in this world. We have adversaries. And and he acknowledged that, and you can't pretend it's not true. It's not kumbaya. It's not why can't we all just get along. There is a very real war out there in the media, in our culture, against us. And the powers of darkness are using everything in their arsenal to try to silence us or cancel us or make us go away. When in the last 2,000 years has that ever worked? I love the example from hundreds of years ago. There was a man named Voltaire. And he was, a, he was very much an enemy of the faith, and he came up with this idea, he postulated, he, he suspected that within a few years of his lifetime, the, the word of God would be held in disrepute, and, and, and the church would be destroyed, Christianity would be gone. Several years after his death, the home he lived in was used to print Bibles, So here's the truth. No man, no woman, no one, no adversary can stand against the church of Jesus Christ, his bride. The gates of hell can't stand against us. So why are we walking around like we can't handle ourselves? Because the truth is most of us within the culture don't know how to handle ourselves. We haven't been training in the word, and as a consequence of that, we find ourselves weak and, unaf- and unable to, to contend and, uh, and afraid to open our mouths many times. But these are the very days in which we live when we need to be able to contend for the faith. That doesn't mean we're contentious, but when attacked, we can respond. So he wrote this because there were adversaries. Now, there were, let me give you a little background, there there, there were antinomians. It's a fancy word, antinomians. Doubt you're going to be able to spell it in Scrabble, but if you can, it's a good one. There were antinomians who perverted the grace of God into a license for immorality. They were the anything goes. You know, the people that go to church, and while they're in church, they seem really spiritual. The minute they walk out the door, they live like they've lived their whole lives and like the rest of the world, they just live like, they, they don't even know God. Even though they come to church, maybe they read their Bible, but their lives haven't been changed. The antinomians perverted the grace of God. They said, well, God's grace covers me, therefore I can do whatever I want, whatever I feel. And there are a lot of people who live that way. There were also Gnostics, who we who talked about previously in John's letters. They denied the true nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They didn't believe he was really, truly the Son of God. There were Gnostics who divided men into the spiritual elite and the spiritually ignorant. So if you were knowledgeable, if you knew stuff, they considered you spiritual. But if you were kind of a novice and you didn't know a whole lot, ah, you're just sort of ignorant. They didn't take you seriously. You know, one of the things that concerns me, uh, Pastor Sal and I were, were having dinner uh, as we were eating, be- right after we set up and, and right before we came in. And we were talking about, you know, how it's really easy sometimes to get into conversations and discussions about theology. It might surprise you to know that I spend little or no time on that subject. Because theology is the study of God. And the last time I checked, you're never going to understand or be able to comprehend God and who he is and how he thinks and what he does. In fact, he told Isaiah, my ways are above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. So... As the heavens are above the earth. You can't bridge the gap from the earth to the heavens. What makes you think that you can figure out God? So all schools of theology, and of course, as a pastor and as a Bible student, over the last 35 years, I am familiar with all of these things. And you know what they all are? Man's idea to explain God. And they all come up short. They're somewhat interesting, but you can get lost in those things. Listen, I am not called to study God. I'm called to worship God. So theology doesn't really interest me. Does that surprise you? I'm not a theologian. I didn't go to school to study theology. I'm not interested in theology. I am interested in God and the study of his word. And that's different. Theology isn't necessarily the study of his word. It should be, but it oftentimes isn't. A lot of times it's the study of a lot of other things, but it's not the study of God's word. So I encourage you, study God's word, worship God. There's going to be a great divide between what you can understand possibly with your finite mind and what you experience in Christ. Your experience of God will far outweigh your ability to understand God. And if you only believe what you can explain, you will miss out on an infinitesimal amount of who God is. And if you focus too much on what you can explain, you're always going to come up short in your experience with God. The Eastern mindset, by Eastern I mean more of the Byzantines and more of the the sort of uh, Middle Eastern way of thinking, is always to be in awe of God for the wonder of God. The Latin or the Western world is always trying to explain God. And there are very different experiences of God in the churches that were birthed in those cultures. But generally, if you take Jerusalem as the midpoint and you go east, most of those people in those cultures are perfectly satisfied to worship God in wonder and according to faith. But if you go west from Jerusalem to the European and Latin cultures in North America, you're going to find most of that culture must explain God in order to to understand. And what they understand, they'll acknowledge. And what they can't, they won't. So I really think... Uh, this is probably most profound when it comes to art. Some of you guys like art. If you look at the religious art of the Western world versus the Eastern world, let's just take the Byzantine church and the Latin church. In the Byzantine church, the artwork of their, their sacred artwork was uh, called an icon. And it was a particular picture that was, or, 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 or painting that was painted to inspire you to worship God. <coughs> The, the painting itself, it wasn't so much about the artistic quality of the painting, some of the meanings of the painting, the, the depth of the painting, the things that were included in it, was designed to draw you in and create in, in you and within you a sense of wonder. The Western world, the art of the Western world, the Latin masters, the European masters, were always looking to try to, in a very detailed way, present the truth of God and his word. So you'll have these fantastic frescoes and murals painting explicit detail, very little wonder. You wonder at the art, the art form, the technique. But the subject matter leaves little for interpretation because it's there. That's what you're seeing. This is the Last Supper. Sometimes there's a blending of the two. But that probably very accurately describes the difference between the Eastern and Western way of thinking as it relates to spiritual things. I started out very much a Western thinker where I like to pick things apart and try to explain them and understand them and compare the schools of thought. But I very rapidly, in my time of worship, became an Eastern thinker and would much rather wonder over one particular phrase of God's Word than memorize whole books of Scripture. And I've done both, and I'll tell you what, sometimes, most of the time, I get a whole lot more out of wonder than I do of memorization. And I do both. Memorization is great if you're going to meditate on it, but if you don't meditate on what you memorize, you're like a computer that just repeats back what you hear. Alexa, John 3.16. I mean, if Alexa can do that and you can do that, what does that mean? It doesn't mean much. But have you taken the time to really think about God's word? So the reason I share these things is because there's a lot of people, and it's a form of Gnosticism, who think that the the spiritually elite are those that have their degrees and, and you know, their understanding of theology. And they're the only ones that really know God. And yet, I'm sorry, but wasn't there a scripture that, some, that said something about God revealing himself to babes? Out of the mouth of babes, that God reveals himself to the poor and to the uneducated and to those that maybe don't know so much, right? I mean, who did Jesus spend time with? And it was the educated people that missed him. I'm not putting down education. I spent a lot of time educating myself in the Word and in many other things. But I'm going to tell you something. Education will not bring you to the wonder and the worship of who God is. It won't. So there were those Gnostics. And then there were these heretics. And they were all heretics, but this group of heretics who denied and even insulted angels. They had no use for spiritual things. So when people talked about angelic beings or resurrected powers or whatever, when they talked about things like that, these guys dismissed it. They were very materialistic. They didn't really believe in those things. So Judah's going to deal with all of them. And over the next few weeks, we're going to break it down. But that's sort of an overview. You know, Jude also provides them with a detailed description of these enemies from Scripture and from other sources in the latter part of chapter 1. He goes to Scripture and other sources and he describes these people in very poetic ways at times. And he reminds them, his audience, of the apostles' prediction that their faith would certainly be attacked. You know what perhaps the most surprising thing to me today is? That we within the church are surprised that we're being attacked. Like, We've been talking about this forever. One of the most frustrating things is a person who's taught the book of Revelation several times over the years, over the last 20, 30 years, uh, is you you teach it, and people listen to it, and they study, and they want to know exactly what's going to happen, and that's not why you study the book of Revelation. You don't study it to know exactly what's going to happen. You study it to see Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation of end-time events. People forget that. But... One of the things that's surprising, you share all these things and people walk away and then some of the things that it talks about start to happen and they freak out. And didn't Jesus say, I'll tell you these things in advance or beforehand so when they happen you'll believe and your faith won't fail. So what's the point of studying prophecy if it's not going to prepare you for the inevitable? Brothers and sisters, we're experiencing today... The inevitable. Okay? That actually should excite us a little bit because it proves God's word to be true. So as we look at this, as we realize that he knew their faith would certainly be attacked and that the apostles had told them this, you knew this, now it's happening and you're freaking out because you might lose your job. What's more important, can I ask you, your faith or your job? What's more important, your family or your job? What's more important? We know the things that are most important. Jude makes this clear in his book. We need to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Well, he also encourages them to remain steadfast. Excuse me, steadfast in their faith and in God's love. Steadfast in their faith and God's love. So he's encouraging them to hang in there. He's encouraging them to be faithful, to be true, to contend and be victorious. And he challenges them to rescue, I like that word, rescue as many as they can from the coming apostasy. Do you know that's what we're doing here at Calvary Chapel? We're trying to rescue as many Christians from the coming apostasy within the church, and we're trying to rescue those in the world from the coming apostasy that's coming upon the whole world, the deception, the lie, that we know will be promoted in the last days. That antichrist is god and jesus isn't we're hoping to be able to reach enough people in the culture and keep those within the church from being deceived that we can be effective in our world today with the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of god's word and to encourage you along the way in god's word so that's it Remain steadfast in your faith and in God's love. That's, That's so important. And then also he challenges them to rescue as many as they can. So we are out there, right, being true in our faith, but we're living out our faith so that we can reach those that either don't have faith or those whose faith is failing them. He also commends them to the power of God in language similar to Paul in Romans chapter 16. We'll see when we get to the last few verses. There's a, a closing, a doxology, an exalted praise, very much like what Paul closed the book of Romans with in chapter 16. And again, we'll go over it in detail. Now, one of the things that I think is very interesting and worth noting is that Jude, and there's only one chapter, but Jude 1, 4 through 16, verses 4 through 16, is almost identical in language and subject with 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 3. That is, if you compare those sections of Scripture, they're, they're, they're virtually the same. They're, they're pretty much the same. And why is that? Well, one of them, that is Peter or Jude, one of them, and by the way, we studied 2 Peter uh, a couple of months ago, but one of them may have drawn... Uh, both their thoughts and their language, from the other. Not surprising, especially if these were written years apart. Uh, It's also possible that they both availed themselves of the same documentary source. So maybe they both had the source of information and wrote from it. But more than likely, it's Jude who quoted from 2 Peter and not Peter who quoted Jude. If you look at the writing and when it was written, uh, we suppose it was written, and you look at what's Written within the book of Jude. There are some reasons for that. One is this that Peter quotes only scriptural sources. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. He knew scripture because Jesus had taught him scripture. He wasn't well versed in a number of other writings, Jewish writings, apocryphal writings, whereas apparently Jude was. Jude quotes from the apocryphal writings like the book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses in this letter, whereas Peter does not. Peter also predicts the coming of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, he talks about that they would come, whereas Jude speaks of the same false teachers as having already arrived. So that's a key to kind of figuring out who wrote first, since the subject matter and the style are so similar. Uh, also, Peter predicts the coming of mockers and scoffers in the last days, and Jude speaks of these same mockers by quoting Peter's prediction. So I think it's pretty clear Peter wrote his letter, and then Jude wrote his. In fact, Peter probably wrote between 64 and 67 AD, while Jude wrote, as I've said, between 75 and 80 AD. So that gives you sort of a a panorama of the information surrounding this epistle. Uh, And by the way, that doxology that closes this book, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, is a beautiful, beautiful doxology. it's considered the finest in the New Testament, and when we get there, we'll break it down. Now, Jude is obviously a Jewish letter with references that are distinctly Jewish and yet enigmatic or mysterious or unknown to non-Jews, so unlike some other letters, this is very much a letter written to Jews. It's simple, it's rugged, it's vivid, it's, it's pictorial, and yet it's clearly the work of a simple thinker. Now, usually when you say a simple thinker, you think, oh, somebody's a simpleton. They're such a simple thinker. Uh, you know what? We tend to complicate things unnecessarily. You know what I love about math? And I've always you know, I had a career in math. I love math. The simpler math is, the more effective it is. You don't look to complicate things. There's The most elegant solution in math is the right solution. That is, if you're going to write an essay in English class, Many words may be necessary. With the answer in math, five is sufficient. That is the the number, five. What's the answer? Five. And that's the whole idea, is that sometimes simple is better than elaborate, complex, and verbose. That is many words. So I I think we need to get away from this thinking that the more you speak and the more you say and the more ideas you have means that you're smarter. Actually, I would say that the elegant solution is that you keep things to the point, concise, simple, to the point, and Jude does. Uh, The Greek that this letter is written in is also forceful and well within the capacity of an Aramaic Jew, but its writing style fits the biography of Jude, the brother of our Lord, extremely well, and so we don't really have any uh, concerns that this was written by someone else. Now, this brief letter of 25 verses is divided into four divisions. It has a greeting and that closing doxology, which I've mentioned. Uh, We'll look at the greeting this evening in verses 1 and 2. There's also a warning about adversaries of the faith and encouragement to the faithful before he closes the book. So let's just look at the beginning. This is very much an introduction today. I want to get us started, and then next week we'll jump in and really start to break this this letter apart. There's a lot in it. Even though it's just one chapter, it's going to take us at least four weeks. There's so much in it. Uh, As we look at verses 1 and 2, really just the introduction, it says, Jude... A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. A beautiful poetic entry into this letter. It just really kind of says it all. Jude sends his greetings to all Christians that would read this letter. So the greeting is to us. He introduces himself as a servant. By the way, that word is slave. It's slave. Rather than saying, oh, you know, do you know who my brother was? You know, I don't know who my brother is. Uh, my brother uh, James. And then, of course, my brother Jesus, you know. I mean, okay, we're not blood brothers, but, you know, we grew up together. No name dropping. None of that. No, he simply introduces himself as a slave of Jesus and a brother of James. He doesn't claim any position or title within the early church. He may have had one, but we don't know because he didn't care to tell us. He doesn't even mention that he's the Lord's own brother. I mean, would you have been able to resist that temptation? You know, I've been around some pastors, and it's really kind of disgusting. They will do their best to let you know everything they can ab- about themselves and who they know, and it's just not a whole lot of fun to be around people like that. You know, love does not boast, right? It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. All of these things we we read in 1 Corinthians 13, and so oftentimes Christian leaders can't show up somewhere without a page and a half of a bio on their lives to make sure you're impressed. Well, maybe that's a bit harsh, but still true. What I do know is that he probably only mentions his brother James to give authority to his letter. James was a pillar in the early church, and so he mentions his brother James. James may have still been alive, but more than likely he was already uh, martyred. But in either case, he mentions James so they know who he is, And then he goes on to talk about the things that he felt led to write. He addresses Christians among whom his brother James was highly esteemed and remembered. In fact, let's break it down. There are three things. I'm going to read it again. See if you can see them with me. He writes to those who have been called. He writes to those who are loved by God the Father. And he writes to those who are kept by Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a whole hour Bible study right there. I mean, it's a lot. But let's break it down quickly. Those three things. You know, first he identifies them as called. Why were they called? Well, they were called because they had been divinely selected and appointed to receive eternal life. That's what it means to be called. Many are called, few are chosen. All, I believe all are called in some capacity, but you're chosen when you respond to God's call. And I'm not going to get into the theology of it because, again, what do you know? What do I know about how God thinks and how God does what he does? Isn't it foolish to think that you can get into the mind of God and understand and explain it, Break it down into some type of theology, you can write a book, systematic theology about how God works. Anytime anyone's ever tried that, they come up short. And by the way, if anyone could do it, why is it that there are so many brilliant men and women with so many differing opinions about the same thing? That only tells me one thing, being smart will not get you the right answer. But worshiping God might just do it. So he identifies them as called, and we've been called. They were divinely selected and appointed to receive eternal life. But he also identifies them as loved, as loved. God loves you. That is a much more important thing to study than other things that, you know, you can get into eschatology and soteriology and all of those things. They're kind of fancy words for God loves you. and He died on a cross for your sins, and he rose again on the third day. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he wants you to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If you can't get past those things, why are you talking about those other things? If you can't adapt that attitude towards your brother, I like the way John says it. And we would studied it together over the last few months. You know, if you say you love God whom or, or you haven't seen, but you, can't, you love your brother whom you have seen, you lie. Truth isn't in you. You're not telling the truth. So, he identifies them and all of us as loved by God the Father. Why were they loved? Because they've been purified and dedicated to him. They belonged to God the Father, but through the person of Jesus Christ. For he also identifies them as kept. I like that word, kept. You could accuse me of believing that God preserves us in and by his grace. Because I really believe that with all my heart. And I like that word, kept. He identified them as kept by Jesus Christ. They were protected and cared for by their Savior. No one could snatch them out of his hands, and no one can snatch you out of his hands either. Because God is faithful to protect us. He loves us. He's called us. He loves us. And he keeps us. Amen? And that's how the letter opens. That's pretty powerful, if you ask me. He also uses a threefold greeting in opening his letter. And when I say a threefold greeting, this is what he says in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now, the Lord told us of himself that he is abounding in love. Abounding in love. That means love. God is love. He's abounding in love. He's merciful, long-suffering. And here we know this truth. Jude writes saying mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance, an abounding love, an abounding mercy, an abounding peace, or a peace that passes all understanding. Now, mercy, when we talk about mercy, mercy speaks of God's kindness. It really does. It speaks of God's kindness towards us as sinners through his Son, Jesus Christ. We're kept in Jesus, and he shows us mercy, that is kindness, because of Jesus. All of the blessings of God the Father are available to us through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, In Christ, we can receive God's mercy, God's peace, and his love. Apart from Christ, you get none of it. Okay, you get none of it. Now, his God loves the world, but if you reject Christ, you abide in his wrath for all eternity. So it's really up to you. You have a choice to make. So mercy speaks of God's kindness toward us as sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we experience that kindness, but peace, peace. Peace speaks of the relationship that we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. When we have a relationship, we're at peace. Have you ever been around someone you don't know very well? It's kind of awkward, maybe like a first date. I would not describe a first date as peace. It's it's generally anxiety-ridden. It's awkward. It's nerve-wracking. No, I've never heard anyone go out on a first date and say, oh man, I was so relaxed. It was so great. It was just, you know, you know they're, they're freaking out. Does this tie look okay? A tie? You're wearing a tie? Oh, is it too much? You know, we, we, we drive ourselves nuts. Listen, peace with God is, is not that you've become so casual that you're not in awe of him, but you know the relationship is secure. Hanging out with someone who you know very well, who you have a good relationship with, is a peaceful experience. It's relaxed. If you say the wrong thing, or if you make a joke that, you know, maybe is a little offensive, you know no matter what happens, that person loves you. You have peace with them. I want you to think about God's kindness, but I also want you to think about God's peace. You can have peace with God through the person of Jesus Christ. You can be in the presence of the creator of time itself, all the universe, all that has ever existed. And, and not that you're relaxed, but listen, you, can, you are at peace you are at peace. You have peace with God. And I think that's an awesome thing to talk about right in the opening of this letter, and Jude does. Finally, he says love, and we've talked a little bit about this already. Love speaks of God's gracious, unconditional love, his grace, his grace for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Some say that mercy is a little bit different than grace, and of course it is. They're different words. You know, grace is God's love to us. We don't deserve that love. We we get what we we don't deserve, but mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And that is judgment. So while grace is getting what we don't deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve, punishment for our sins. So thank God for his grace, his love, his mercy, and the peace that we have because we know these things. Boy, right there, you could close the book and say, I feel pretty good right now. I, I know God loves me. But see, here's the problem. We're going to see Jude wanted to write to them about these things, but there's a battle. It's not enough to just sit back and say, oh, God loves us. Let's just sing it. Let's sing another round, brother. Let's, one more chorus of God loves us. And that's wonderful but there's an enemy out there there are many enemies out there there are adversaries looking to destroy you and you can't just be hanging out in church with your hands up worshiping God and not aware of what's going on around you in the spiritual realm and also in the world in which we live and so Jude will go on to talk about that in just a minute in fact in verse 3 and we'll just uh, you know we'll do we'll just take verses 3 and 4, and then we'll pick it up next week in verse 5 as he gets into a detailed description of these enemies. But I don't want to miss this. He says, dear friends, in verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So you see what happened there is Jude opened up his letter and and, you know we're all feeling great. Love, mercy, peace. God's keeping us. He's called us. He loves us. It's all good stuff. And then he stops and says, that's what I really wanted to write to you. And I have, but now I gotta talk to you about the battle. I gotta tell you that we're taking fire. I need to tell you that we're getting hit. You need to be ready to contend. And as I opened up, you gotta be, you gotta have the the, the bruises. You you gotta get in the fight. You gotta take some hits. You gotta give some. Spiritually speaking, you need to be contending for the faith. Oh, yeah, he had originally planned to write them. Oh, about their salvation in Christ. Everyone wants to hear about that. We've already talked about that. And I don't want to stop talking about that, neither did he, but he writes to them. He's not rebuking them. He doesn't even have the slightest hint of rebuke, but he would have rather written to them about much more positive things. And brothers and sisters, I would much rather preach about positive things than talk about the negative that's in our world. But if the word of God is going to have any impact in your life and application, we got to talk about the truth of God's word and the application in this dark world. So we have to talk about those things, Jude would say, and I would certainly echo. He's writing to them to urge them to contend for the true faith they had received from the apostles. Apparently, he was directed by the Spirit to address the current crisis within the church. Can you do that? Can you be directed by the Holy Spirit to address the current crisis in the church from the pulpit? I hope so. I've been doing it for about two years now. I was doing it before, but now there's been so much crisis that I, I feel that pretty much every Sunday I have to address some aspect of it, because the Spirit would lead us to, to approach it that way. And God has been faithful to speak to us that way. But he wants them to take an active role in defending the truth of God's Word in the church. All of us need to be activated, you know? Uh, if you're on reserve, if you're in the military and you're a reservist, they activate you. You yeah, you go on active duty. There are no reserves right now. Everyone's activated. You know, as we've been fighting wars for the last 20 years in the Middle East and throughout the world, uh, many people who went into the reserves or joined the reserves found out there was really no difference between the reserves and active duty. So reservists and National Guard members, they they were fighting right alongside active members because there was no difference. Because there's a war, there's a battle, everyone's in it. So if you think you're sort of a reservist Christian... Or, you're, you know, a weekend warrior. Let me tell you something. You've been drafted, whether you like it or not. You are activated. And Jude wanted them to know this. They were as well. And what does he do? Just to get us started, just to begin the process, he identifies these adversaries of the faith. He identifies them. After telling them they need to get in the battle and contend for the faith, he tells them that they are godless men that are concerned, or excuse me, they're godless men that are condemned by God for their wicked ways. You know, listen, the Scripture predicted their coming. I've mentioned that already. They had infiltrated the church in order to destroy it. If you don't believe that has happened, just drive down any block in any town, especially in the suburbs, and see how many rainbow flags you see flying out in front of churches. I call that infiltration. Would you agree? They had infiltrated the church in order to destroy it. They were destined for destruction because of their rejection of the gospel, and he's concerned enough to write these things. They were false teachers that taught heresies within the early church. And they haven't disappeared. They're still around today. They perverted the grace of God into a license for immorality. The fancy word, antinomian Gnostics. We talked about them already. That is, oh, God loves us. God is love. God is love. God loves everybody. So let's celebrate your particular brand of sin Let's celebrate your sexual sin. Let's celebrate, let, let's celebrate not only that you're gay, but that you're proud. And by the way, proud? That's an even greater sin than being a homosexual in the eyes of God, because pride is sin. So here we are. We're in a world where we celebrate all of these things. And of course God loves sinners, but he doesn't love sin. Can I hear an amen? He hates sin. And here's the church celebrating sin. What in the world? We've been infiltrated. Get your gloves on. I almost brought my gloves. I, I have gloves, you know. I almost brought my gloves as a uh, object lesson here today, as a prop, because you know you, you gotta get them. You better get used to the fact that you're in a battle. You're in a war. And so these godless men that the scripture had predicted had infiltrated the church in order to destroy it. But they were destined for destruction. We're destined for eternal life. They're going to be destroyed because they reject the gospel these false teachers, they taught heresies within the early church. Why aren't more pastors and leaders willing to expose these heresies? Why? Oh, you know, well, you know, we're not going to say anything. We don't want to offend anybody. Really? Jude didn't feel that way. He was willing to contend for the faith. They perverted the grace of God. They perverted it, as I said, into a license for immorality They also denied the true nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They were called docetists, and they, they were the people. They just denied who God was. I think we see a little of that today. Denying who God is. Denying the truth of God's word. Saying that God is love, but that he's not truth. Denying the nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Saying he's someone other than the Son of God. And declaring that Jesus is the one true God and only sovereign Lord is what Jude does in the opening here to make it abundantly clear. We contend for the faith. You know, one last thought as we close. Uh, When you're in a battle, especially ancient battles, but this happens today as well. Today we have high-tech ways of identifying where our troops are. But in the ancient days, when they were fighting wars, they would have banners. And a banner would be in the air so that you knew where your men were. And you could, round, uh, you could go around that banner and you could fight along your battle lines and you knew exactly where you were supposed to be because of these banners. These banners are what kept everybody organized. Well, here's our banner. Our banner is that Jesus is the one true God and only sovereign Lord. And we gather around that truth and we take on any enemy that would seek to pervert that truth or use that truth in such a way as to tell a lie. And we contend for the faith because we know surely that this is not a playground. This is a battleground. And we are called to contend for the faith. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We now ask that you would be glorified as we continue to worship you and acknowledge you in our lives. Lord, we will not surrender any ground. We will not shrink away. We are going to stand firm and steadfast in this battle for what is true and what is right. Lord, help us to follow the very simple truths as we worship you in awe and wonder. And may we not get sidetracked or distracted from the basic preaching of your word and teaching of your word and the preaching of your gospel, that we might rescue people from this wicked world and wake up those who are asleep in the church. Lord, give us your grace, give us your mercy, give us your truth, and give us your strength and your courage, that we might honor you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.